Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to, to be here today. For those of you who don't know, my name is Tony, and I am a, a missions intern here at the church, and we're, me and my family are headed to Nicaragua. So uh, just by way of just a quick update, we have passed the 50% mark in our support raising, which is uh, pretty exciting. It beats beat some of the, uh, the benchmarks that our agency had for us. So, um, so really grateful and excited about that. We also just today just got a new prayer request. So if you could please pray that I don't get parasites, I would uh, <laughs> I'd really appreciate that prayer. Because <laughs> I'm not sure Nicaragua is any cleaner than, uh, than Bolivia. So... Um, yeah, and we also, um, you know, we haven't been around a lot lately. Uh, you, some of you may have noticed we've been traveling, uh, doing some support raising, and we actually qualified to go for a longer uh, training next month, and so we'll be out again for an extended stretch of time. So um, we're pretty excited about that. Things are going pretty well. So uh, thank you guys for that, for, for those who are a part of it. Um, as part of the training, one of the things that uh, we have to do is they gave us some books to read. And one of the books that I read was a, a book called A Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And for those of you who don't know who he is, he was a, a German theologian around the time of World War II. Uh, he actually died in a concentration camp uh, in World War II because he got caught up in a plot to kill Hitler, which uh, obviously didn't go very well. Um, but yeah, that's, he, one of the things that he wrote in that that just really stood out to me was he said, it's not as important for me to find out what God has for me today as much as it's important for me to know what he did to Israel and through Christ. And I think that that was a really powerful quote for me because I think it points to the reality that a lot of times in our current situation, it's hard for us to look and understand what God's actually doing. What is he trying to teach me right now? Um, sometimes we can look back and we can see in the past, and we can say, okay, I see, I see what God was doing there. Um, but God doesn't explicitly tell us, this is what I'm teaching for you today. But one of the great things about continuing our study in the Old Testament is that in these stories, God just opens up and he tells us what he was thinking. And, and we can find out what he was doing, and we can learn about his character. And by understanding those things, we can make better sense of our experience today. So we're continuing our, um, our series, and today we come to Exodus 14. So it's in our um, worship folder. It's also going to be up there. We'll be reading uh, some portions from that chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Harioth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the, of, of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptians' forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained." But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. And so as we go through the series and as we try to learn more about who God is to apply that to our daily experience, um, the lesson that I think we need to, to learn here about God is that God is the God who destroys our enemies. And uh, I know at first that doesn't really sound very Jesus-y, right? I mean, you know, love and all that stuff, but he you know, destroys our enemies. But, but, but it is, and I, I hope to convince you of that today, um, and so we, we come to the story of the Red Sea, and, and this is one of those stories that uh, is really familiar for most people. A lot of people who've never been to church can at least picture, right, Charlton Heston, you know, holding out his hands, and the Red Sea's partying, and everybody walking through. And so if we're not careful, um, we can just kind of put this in the back of our minds and file it away in the same area where we put, you know, other childhood fairy tales and myths. And if we do that, we miss the powerful thing that God is trying to teach us here. I mean, as, as a child, I'm sorry, as a child, I never really asked too much about why they ended up in the Red Sea in the first place. I mean, they're being led by God, right? And there's, there's a pillar of fire at night, and there's a cloud by day. And just in my own imagination, I thought they left Egypt, and they run right into the Red Sea. And, and I don't know, maybe God's GPS got, got mixed up with the cloud, or the, you know, the fire burned something in there. I don't know how they end up there. Uh, but what's neat is that it tells us. Uh, and actually, there were two pretty common trade routes from Egypt to Palestine, to the Promised Land. 
Uh, there is one called the King's Highway, which would have made the most sense for them. Uh, it, it's the one that kind of goes along the north, and if you just can picture the, the area in your mind, it kind of skirts across, around, the, uh, around the coast. And it would have been the fast way to go. But God knew the hearts of his people, and he knew that if they went that way, they were going to have to fight the Philistines really quickly, and they didn't have the faith for that yet. And so God takes them, and he takes them along a more southerly route, but, but it's again, it's one that, that was used. And so the people were probably not initially too freaked out about where they were going because you know, they grew up in the area. They knew this is the way people go. But then God, you know, he throws a little monkey wrench into that, right? And he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. He takes Moses aside. And he says, I'm going to make it look like you're lost. And so when Pharaoh hears that you're lost, he's going to try to come out and he's going to attack you. And, and so, so Moses knew about it, but apparently... He didn't initially tell all the people of Israel about it either because they, they freaked out, right? So, so there's probably some sort of message here on corporate communication, which we won't get into, but, but he didn't let everybody know. They were all in a panic. And so when they look and they, they see Pharaoh's coming after them, they just get this mob together and they go and they're just yelling at Moses. And I've never, I've never been in the mob, and I, I hope to never be in a mob, but in my mind when I picture a mob, I picture... Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, but there's a scene where there's these group of villagers, and they think they've got a witch. And so they're taking him to the, the local lord. And, and what happens in the mob is they just start yelling out these crazy things. And, of course, with Monty Python, it's, it's a lot more humorous than it probably is in real life. And so, so the lord says, how do you know she's a witch? And she says, they say, well, she looks like one. And somebody else yells out, she turned me into a newt. They look at him, you know, turned you into a newt. Well, I got better. So, so, so they yell at these crazy things. And, and that's no different than what happens with Israel, right? They get their mob together and they go before Moses. And, and somebody in the crowd, uh, I don't know who, you know, was just in a panic. And they thought this through and they said, I know, you brought us out here because there weren't enough graves in Egypt. Huh? Is, that, is that what it is? I mean, I thought there were plenty of graves in Egypt, but apparently I was wrong, and we needed to come out here to die. Right? I mean, they were in just full panic mode. Moses probably rolling his eyes at him, probably not very happy about that. Do you remember just what just happened? We just came out, just came out of Egypt. He says, just hold on. And of course, God didn't take him out there to die. He, he opens the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land. And then when Pharaoh's army tries to go through, he closes the water and he kills them. And I don't know, I imagine that as they're walking through on dry land, Moses is probably giving those guys the evil eye, like, graves, really? What do you, what do you think about that now? But, um, yeah, so as we, as we look at this, this story... As we, as we look at these Old Testament stories and we try to make this one have sense to our lives, I think there's three things that we, we need to really consider. First thing is we need to understand the playing field. If we're going to try to make sense of this, we, we need to know who's the enemy that God's going to destroy. What's, what's the promised land that he's leading us to? But, but the second thing we need to understand is that, is that all of this was orchestrated as a trap. God wasn't lost. His GPS wasn't messed up. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he was orchestrating a trap. And the final thing we need to understand is that the God who freed us from our captivity and from our enslavement, 
He can be trusted to lead us to the promised land. But first, we need to, we need to understand the playing field. I've told this story before, but I'm going to go ahead and tell it again. Um, it was 2008 for us, and we, uh, Amber and I, we were married. We had two kids, Abigail and Hannah, and she was pregnant, about four months pregnant with Bethany. And we were living in Fort Lauderdale, and Fort Lauderdale at the time was really expensive to live in. And so, so we had just struggled financially there. We had a third child on the way. I was the only one who worked. And so, so it was a real hard time, and we came up with the idea, you know, we're going to move to North Carolina, to the Raleigh-Durham area, because from what we had read from the people we had talked to, this area was uh, recession-proof. So we were going through the recession of Fort Lauderdale, but we're going to move up to this place where there's plenty of jobs, low cost of living, but high wages. It was going to be great. Um, but before we did that, we had to sell our place. And uh, at the time, we had known people, and I had worked with a guy who had been trying to sell his house for two years. And so we thought, okay, well, we want to go to this great place in North Carolina, but uh, first we have to sell our place, and this is going to take a while. So uh, we thought, okay, well, we'll put the house on the market, and uh, when the baby comes, we'll take it back off, but we'll have learned some lessons in that time, and so when the baby gets a little older, we can put it back on, we'll have more experience, we'll know what we're doing. Um, so it didn't work out that way. We, we put our house on the market, and the second person who walked in bought it. And so, so it was great for me, because I thought, wow, God is really working this out. Life is going to be easy from now on. I found favor in the sight of the Lord. We're going to move up to North Carolina. This is a sign. North Carolina is going to be awesome. So we packed up. Amber was six months pregnant when we moved. And we're just marching off to North Carolina. And I'm thinking, hail the conquering hero. And and we get to North Carolina. And uh, it didn't work out that well. You know, obviously, we're in Winter Haven not North Carolina, so that's, that's a little bit of a clue. But, <laughs> but I couldn't get a job, um, and it was just a really hard time. And I remember that um, after Bethany was finally born, I still hadn't found a job. And I remember um, being up in my room alone. We had two two-story place there, and I was up in my room alone, and I was just crying out. And I, I was just like, God, why did you forsake me? Why did everything go well in the cell of my house to bring me up here where everything is going wrong? Uh, yeah, I, I've been a good boy. I mean, why, like, why have you forgotten about me? And basically what I was saying to God was, were there not enough graves in Fort Lauderdale that you brought me up to Raleigh-Durham to die? But I had gotten the playing field mixed up. See, what it revealed in my heart was that I had thought success was the promised land and that unemployment was the enemy. And we do that, right? We make other things the promised land, whether it's, whether it's financial security, whether it's physical health. We make physical health the promised land, but physical health is not the promised land. A, a good family is not the promised land because this life is not the promised land for us. It's the wilderness. And we've got something else coming. We're not existentialists who believe this is the best life that we're going to have. We've got something forward to look, to look forward to. And just like, just like 
Financial success was not, is not the promised land. Unemployment's not the enemy. Uh, sickness is not the enemy. Right? Marital strife is not the enemy. The, the hardships that we face is just the reality of life in the wilderness. But it shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us that we make other things a promised land because a lot of times we have different values than God. And, and the things that we find to be most important are not necessarily the things that he finds to be the most important. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, you can turn to, to Jeremiah chapter 9. Uh, if you don't want to turn there, I can, I can read it to you. I'll help you out a little bit. Um, but if you do want to turn to it, keep your Bibles out because we're going to be jumping around a little bit after this. So God is talking through Jeremiah to Israel and he says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. See, see a lot of times we want to boast in our, in our riches or in our, or in our might. And God says, those aren't the things that I find valuable. And the things that he finds valuable are more important, really, than, our, than what we find is valuable. I mean, it's the same way as a parent, right? I mean, I have four daughters. And as a parent, the things that I value are vegetables, nap time, and obedience. And uh, it's probably not a big surprise that that's not what my kids value the most, right? They value value candy, staying up late, and running wild. And and those things are fine to a certain extent, right? I give them some candy, and I I want them to stay up late sometimes, and let them run around, obviously, at some points, but... But because I love them, and because I know that my values are supreme in their lives, I don't give them everything that they value. I give them what I want. What I see is good for them. Because their life is going to be better if they have vegetables, nap time, and obedience. And God does the same thing with us. He loves us too much to let us go back into the slavery of our sin. And what happens is if we make this life the promised land, if we make our value supreme, then eventually what we'll end up doing is going back to Egypt. Because there's plenty of graves in Egypt. It's a little easier there sometimes. But God loves us too much to allow that to happen. And so as we understand the playing field, as we know what the enemy is, it's our sin, as we know what the... The promised land is its eternity. We also need to understand that God works to make us more holy by setting up traps for the enemy. Um, when, when, I, when I thought about this and I thought of the phrase, it's a trap, it's my mind went to, to the uh, return of the Jedi. And it's a picture that's you know, around on the internet a lot nowadays. It's uh, Admiral Akbar, who looks like a fish. Have you ever seen Return of the Jedi? And he's, he's one of the leaders of the rebel 
Alliance. And basically what happens in the movie, if you've never seen it, you need to see it, even if you don't like sci-fi. You've got to watch you know, the other ones first. But uh, they get intelligence that the Empire's Death Star doesn't have its shields. Or they're going to destroy the shields, and it doesn't have its weapon system. And so they decide now's the time to get everybody together and to go and attack and destroy the Death Star. This is our chance. And so they get everybody together, and and they go into hyperspace, and they come out right in front of the Death Star, and they realize, to their horror, that the shields are still up. And the famous line the guy yells is, it's a trap! And and that's the way that the Egyptians felt, right? Because they come barreling after Israel. They see him go through the Red Sea. I don't know what they were thinking following him. I mean, I guess they thought, this is pretty odd weather, but we'll go with it. And so, so they're sailing in after him. And then all of a sudden, their, their wheels start getting stuck in the mud. And they look up, and they see the, the water start falling into them. And they, they must have, somebody must have yelled at an Egyptian, it's a trap, right? We're, we're in trouble. And that's what God does to our enemy. See, when I was in North Carolina, it wasn't just a hard time financially. It was a hard time spiritually. Because the idols that once held me got on their chariots, and they said, now is our time. And so they come barreling after me. And so there was a lot of increased temptation for for doubting God, for for, for really revealing my greed and how I trust in money more than I trust in God, how I value success more than I value God. And what God does is he sets these traps so that the sin is revealed in our lives, and just when it may even feel like we're going to lose, we realize the shields are still up, the Holy Spirit is still in control, and he's not going to let us be put to shame. Look to Romans chapter 5. Let's start reading in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There we have the promise. We, we go through the traps, but the traps aren't for us. They're not to hurt us, they're to hurt the enemy, to destroy the sin in our lives. So we can produce endurance. And although it may feel hard, God's not going to be let us be put to shame. You can turn again to James um, chapter 1. And probably about a third of you guys probably have this memorized already. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 2. Starting with verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Unless steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, God has a wonderful plan for your life, that you would lack nothing. And so he's going to work out the sin in your life to free you from the hold that it has. You know, 
one of the neat things about being in a church like this is being around people of different generations. And uh, one of the great things for me is to be around uh, some of these older godly men who have been Christians sometimes as long as I've been alive. Uh, because, because it's so neat to see how over the years in their life, God has been faithful to make them more and more holy and make them more and more like him. And, and they probably don't even, probably some of you guys are sitting here thinking, hey, well, he surely can't be talking about me, and I probably am talking about you. Um, but you can see how God is faithful to make these men more like him. And, and we can, they all have these same things in common, where they're, they're all humble, they're all godly, they're all meek, they're all of wisdom. And it's just great being around people like that because I lack that a lot. In the same way, it's great to be around some of the people who, who here are younger than us, and, and we can be around them and see how God is, is working out some of the things in, in, our, in their lives that he already worked out in mine. I know one time, um, the person's not here, so it's not that bad, but the, there's somebody who, um, who was giving me a hard time, he was a younger guy, and I remember going to Drew and being like, I can't believe this guy. I mean, can you believe this guy? He, can you believe how arrogant he is? And he's like, yeah. I mean, he reminds me of a young you. <laughs> like, That's true. Um, and so just like God didn't take the Israelites straight from Egypt to the promised land, he, he took them through the wilderness. He put them through traps to, to destroy the enemy. He does the same thing with us, right? We don't get saved and turn from our sin and get zapped to heaven. Right? He's working through this time, and, and it's not always fun, but he's working through it to make us more like him. The theological term is our sanctification. But, but even when we understand that uh, we're going to the promised land, that he has some sort of plan worked out, even though we know that the enemy sin, he's working to destroy our enemies, and, and then heightened times of temptations or traps that God sets to, to destroy the sin in us, uh, Still, when we go through those times, it's still not fun, is it? I mean, it still, still can be discouraging. And so in those times, we need to look back and see that he freed us from Egypt. We need to look back at what he did. And we need to know that the one who freed us is capable to lead us to the promised land. So we need to look back and we need to see what he did, and we need to look forward and see where he's leading us to. See, when the Israelites freaked out to Moses, right, and they're like, I can't believe this. You took us out here. We're going to die. There's no graves in Egypt. You brought us out here. I mean, Moses was probably, he was probably getting angry. He's probably fed up. I mean, it couldn't have been very long that they, that they left Egypt. And they, they left Egypt, Egypt in some pretty amazing ways, right? I mean, the plagues were miracles. And so he said, look, look back at what God did and have some, have some courage there. And, and a lot of times in our lives, in our experience, we need to do the same thing. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And what he's pointing to is the reality of this, that, that God gave Jesus for you. He's freed you from the bondage of the sin that you were in. And because he did that amazing work, 
You can be trusted today. You can be trusted in what you're going through. But, but it's not just looking back that's helpful. A lot of times we need to look forward and really believe that we're lead, being led towards the promised land. You know, it, it's easy to fall into the same, the same despair that the, that the Israelites fell into, which is like, well, I guess you just led us up to the Red Sea so we could die here. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews says to us. Chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. In that he rewards those who seek him. There is a reward coming. I mean, God has really good things planned for us. I mean, we want money. And God's like, I've got so much money, I paved the ground with gold. And we want, we want a, a good family. And God says, listen, you're going to be with me, your heavenly father, for all eternity. And we want health. And God says, listen, I'm taking you from a place where there are plenty of graves to a place where there is no death. And if we're going to have the courage and the faith to walk through times of increased temptation in our lives... We need to believe not only what he did for us, but what he has coming for us. And know that it is a great reward. But for some people here, for some of us, um, the struggles that we face are, are not the struggles of the wilderness. It's, it's that you're still in bondage in Egypt. And basically what happened was this, right? Adam gets the, the fruit from Eve, from the snake, and he takes it, and for the price of the fruit, for the bite of the fruit, in his act of rebellion, he sells all humanity into sin. And from that time, we are stuck in life under the harsh taskmaster of the snake and of our sin. And then what happens? Jesus comes, right? We just celebrated that last week. God comes down as a man. He lives a righteous life. And he stands like Adam stood as a representative for all humanity. But instead of selling us into slavery, he dies and he pays the price of our freedom. He, through his death, he pays the ransom so that we can be free. It's the ultimate emancipation proclamation, right? That in his death, we no longer have to suffer in the hardship of Egypt. And it's the ultimate trap, right? Because God used death to defeat death. And Christ became our sin to defeat the power of sin in our lives. And he offers us that freedom. So if you've never taken advantage of that, if you've never turned from your sins, if you've never followed after Christ, I would encourage you to do so today. But for those of us who are believers and who may be experiencing a a time of increased temptation, whether it's hardship or even sometimes in success, and maybe you feel like it's a losing battle, I just want to give you this hope. That God that God is setting a trap for your sin. 
And he is actively working to make you more holy and make you more like him. And the God who freed us from the bondage of Egypt can be trusted to lead us to the reward and to the promised land. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have good things for us. We thank you that you have better things for us than than we can even think about. And we pray, Lord, that as we go through this next week and we go through this next year, that we would be reminded that you are working out a grand plan for our lives where we would be, would be holy, where we'd be free from the bondage of sin. We pray, Lord, that you would give us faith to believe that. In Jesus' name, amen. God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. It's those two lines. It's those two truths uh, that are the reason I can raise my hands over you, uh, over myself included. Uh, to give you this good word, the benediction. So receive it now by faith as you go to face whatever it is uh, that you have to face from here. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen.